All right, let's uh, thank you all for uh, uh, joining uh, tonight. Father, we thank you for your presence here. We acknowledge it by faith. You promised that where we collect together in your name, that you would join us there and be in our midst. We're so grateful to know that. And right now, we, we very intentionally choose to relax our grip, Lord, on any challenges, on any problems, any possible sources of anxiety and concern that we may have arrived here with. We release them now into your care into your hands and we leave them there we know that you care for us so we can turn our thoughts now toward you and I pray that as we do that tonight Lord by your Holy Spirit you speak to us Lord Jesus reveal yourself make yourself known to us more profoundly and more intimately, we pray, tonight. And I pray, Lord, that as we leave here, we leave touched and transformed by your grace and by your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're um, going to pick up where I left off last Sunday, or excuse me, last uh Thursday evening, uh, but I want to uh, return, if you would please, to Acts, the first chapter, and then we will very quickly revisit Acts chapter 2. <coughs> this um, series that we began several weeks ago on the personal work of the Holy Spirit, I mentioned that I, I'm, I'm trying to approach this a little differently than I have in the past where I've, I've uh, taught on, on this subject. I want to try to blend together um, theological, historical, and practical perspectives uh, in, in a way that might make this more meaningful and also address the, the what I sense is uh, the probability that we are now uh, moving in the periphery of a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it's been sometimes since we've experienced that in the in the larger church uh, and the last I think um, at least by the record of many the last significant outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurred probably uh, near the mid to late 50s beginning at that time really um, exploding onto the scene in the early 60s and continuing throughout the 70s and probably the early to mid-80s. And then it began to wane, as they do. Um, but during that period, not only was there renewal experience throughout the church globally, but there was also an attendant spiritual awakening that vis visited nation after nation the United States to be included among those nations that were visited by a spiritual awakening. And so it thrills me to, uh, to sense that we may be in such a place once again that renewal will sweep through the church world. And we are in need of it. Um, 
and also a spiritual awakening, a visit, visit the United States and visit other countries. But boy, here in the United States, we are desperately in need of a spiritual awakening. I, I'm 58, and I can't think of a time. Now, there may be those who are older than me that say, I remember worse, Larry, but I can't think of a time, at least in my adult life, that we have been um, so fractured as a nation. Um, it's not simply that we uh, disagree with each other, but we now hold each other in contempt. And it's it's actually a little frightening. Um, and so a spiritual awakening, uh, touching the hearts of men and women who do not yet know Christ can be transformative for a nation as well as for those individuals. So again, I'm I'm hopeful that uh, the manner in which this series is conducted, it, it might uh, help us in that regard. All right, so let's look at Acts, the first chapter, beginning with verse 1. Um, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, and some people refer to this as Luke, uh, the second book of Luke. Luke, of course, wrote the gospel uh, that bears his name but he is also the author of the book of what we refer to, at least, as the book of Acts. About all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And John, of course, introduced Jesus on um, the stage of world history as Jesus, the Son of God, and Jesus, baptizer with the Holy Spirit. So John baptized with water. Jesus is reminding them that he will baptize them, not long from uh, now, he said, with the Holy Spirit. So when they had come together, they were asking him, verse 6, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father had fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, this might have been something of a surprise. You can see by this question that these uh, men, though they have witnessed something extraordinary in the um, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they were still viewing Jesus' um, work as Messiah as a work which would restore Israel as a, a power to be reckoned with among the nations. And Jesus is beginning to introduce to them the idea that, uh, or I should say amplify the idea that he'd already addressed uh, during his earthly ministry, we see it written in the Gospels that his kingdom is not of this world. But then he uh, explains to them, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, 
Then in Judea, it's going to expand like a pebble thrown into the water, expanding concentrically. And then where? Samaria. Oh. And then the uttermost parts of the earth, the most remotest parts of the world. So he's now explaining to them that this mission that he is sending them on, that they will soon be embarking upon, is global in its scope. That it extends well beyond Jerusalem and Israel, though it will begin there, and it is global in its scope. It would take them some time to comprehend this idea. For them, the church was a Jewish was going to be a Jewish institution. Verse 9, after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And as I've remarked for several weeks, I want to continue to emphasize this evening this should be striking to us as we read this account. If you and I had witnessed this extraordinary event, this supernatural event in which Jesus is suddenly uh, drifting heavenward, gravity has lost its hold on his body, and he's actually ascending into the heavens, and a, a great cloud is receiving him as he is um, um, floating toward heaven, we would stand in wonder and awe observing this, wouldn't we? And we would probably be moved to worship him as we witness this. And yet, in the midst of this, Two angels appear to them, messengers, and their, their message is succinct. What are you doing standing here looking into heaven? I think it was Miriam who said several weeks ago when I read this, that was rude. Well, they, they did seem to be interrupting this moment of reverie and, and, and probably a moment of worship and wonder. But the point is clear. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. You have been empowered to continue that ministry throughout the earth. He's coming back. That means the clock is running. So there's not a moment to waste. Go to Jerusalem. And they did. And Luke, in, in his gospel, records that they, they, they departed with great joy. Why? Well, they were beginning to comprehend that Jesus was going to be with them as they continued in the way, but certainly the notion that this baptism with the Holy Spirit in which Jesus promised He would come to them again through the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, Jesus would come to them in the person of the Holy Spirit, and be with them, and also now He promised in them. So they returned. And on, in verse 1, we read, when the day of Pentecost of chapter 2 had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues 
as the Spirit was giving them utterance. What a marvelous event. To be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we know this was something subsequent to salvation. In the book of John, remember, Jesus breathed on the disciples after his resurrection. He's with the disciples. He breathes on them and says, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. At that instant, uh, they were spiritually reborn. Made alive in Christ. And so, this infilling with the Holy Spirit occurred subsequent to that, didn't it? In addition to that, And it is something we all require. It's really mandatory. It's essential. It is normal and normative for the believer to experience this. Ephesians, the uh, language Paul uh, employs there in Ephesians 5.18, he commands us to be as I explained last week, if we were to read in the original text, we would read, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. So an initial infilling is not enough because we leak. So we need to be being filled. What is the purpose of this infilling of the Holy Spirit? It's power, yes. Power for what? Power to minister effectively? Power to... uh, um, pray for healing to cast out spirit. Yes, but as I as I said several weeks ago, Jesus had already given that to them in Luke the ninth chapter when he uh, sent out the twelve. Initially, he gave them authority and power. Yes, we need power to walk in the miraculous, but we need power for living the life we've been called to live in Christ. It is impossible to lead the Christian life as described and commanded in this book in the absence of the the, uh, power and presence of God the Holy Spirit in our life. It is impossible. It's not improbable. It's impossible. Um, And this is what I... I, We're going to uh, move over into uh, addressing what we did last week with regard to faith, but I I want you, uh, again, to see that um, this fruit of the Spirit Paul addresses in Galatians 5, which is what? What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love is the fruit of the Spirit. These other... um, the things listed along with it, long-suffering, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. They are, they are um, aspects of love. They are facets of love. Um, they are expressions of love. But the fruit of the Spirit, singular, is love. That same love that Paul said was liberated in our hearts by the Holy Spirit when we were born again. But this infilling somehow amplifies it. It allows us not simply to have more of God, but it allows God to have more of us. And boy, I need God to have more of me. 
we often, and as, as I said last week, we, or a week before, I think, we often um, imagine, well, if I could just lead a, a life in which I obeyed God more, a, a more sin-free life, I could be a spiritual giant. That somehow sinlessness leads to spirituality. And yet Paul in Ephesians 5 says precisely the opposite thing. He said, if you are led of the Spirit, if you are filled with the Spirit, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So our goal is first and foremost to be what? Filled with the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit. And these uh, other matters which do concern us and, and rightly ought to concern us, we want to lead our lives in a fashion pleasing to the Lord. Doesn't it grieve you when you miss the mark? Sure it does. And it intrudes upon um, our uh, love relationship, our intimacy with God, and with each other. And so the the Spirit-filled life, the Spirit-empowered life, is a life which reveals itself um, most profoundly within the context of community. Sometimes people imagine, well, if I'm a very spiritual person, I will be a loner. No. I mean, we think of someone in a monastery. What a, what a deeply spiritual life. Um, alone in the monastery, ministering before the Lord. Admittedly, I, I know it may seem difficult to believe this because I'm standing here talking to you, but I'm by nature an introvert. Um, I was terrified for years of just saying hello to people because I thought, well, what comes next? After hello? How's the weather? How about those Red Sox? I got to go. I've run out of things to talk about. Um, yes, we want to spend time alone with God. We want to spend time alone reflecting on His Word and what He's spoken to our own hearts. But we are by nature social creatures. We need and crave social interaction and we are desperately incomplete without it and we cannot develop fully as human beings in its absence. The spiritual life is a life lived in community. And we will discover that love and authority, love and power are inextricably linked. Just like faith and forgiveness are inextricably linked. That the spiritual life is a life, it's a cruciform life. God, who is love, has revealed His nature and His love by dying for us. And He didn't simply die for us. He died the humiliating death of a criminal. The cross, death by the cross, was capital punishment. It was sheer, sheer torture. Physically, the pain was extraordinary. Then there was the psychological torture, the shame, the humiliation of such a death. 
a death which occurred very publicly. So he wasn't simply willing to die for us, but to suffer humiliation on our behalf, and then to lovingly serve us. That is the love of God. And that when you are loving and serving others, you are at your most spiritual. And when you are obeying what God has called you to do, which involves conflict, and, and God's authority and power are necessary in those moments to push through. It may be God's called you to do a particular thing, and there may be obstacles. It may be when you are ministering to others. But when you face challenge because you are following God's will for your life, that's a holy moment. Do you recall when Joshua was standing finally after 40 years of waiting, the second generation of Israel is beginning their march into the promised land. And they have crossed over the River Jordan and Joshua is, is reviewing the uh, city of Jericho and he understands an, a battle, an epic battle is approaching. And suddenly, a being appears to him that, that appears ready for war. And Joshua said, are you for us or against us? So Joshua was clearly in a fighting mood. And it was the angel of the Lord a type of Christ, or Christ. And what did he say to Joshua? Take your shoes off, for where you're standing is holy ground. When we are, when we are walking by faith, we are on holy ground. And we are at our most spiritual when we are loving God and loving others. When we are serving God, and serving others. That is uh, a, a man or a woman at their most spiritual moment. Look with me at um, Luke, the ninth chapter. Okay, so authority and power was given by Jesus to the disciples. And yet, we read on one occasion that, and again, we, we looked at this uh, recently a man brought his son to his disciples to heal him, and they were unable to. And so he, he uh, brought his son to Jesus, and he said, look, I, my son is uh, in need of deliverance and healing, but your disciples were unable to minister to him. And Jesus ministered to the young man, and he was, he was liberated, and his disciples came to him and said, why couldn't we do that? And, and the short answer is, this kind cometh not out but by prayer and fasting. But it's important that you study the context closely because he's not talking about this kind of spirit uh, doesn't come out but by prayer and fasting. He's talking about this kind of unbelief. Their unbelief does not come out but by prayer and fasting. Well, what happens when we are fasting and praying? Well, it, we cited a number of scriptures last week, but in particular, I think Acts, the 13th chapter, they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said, separate unto me Barnabas and Paul for the work we're into. I've called them prayer and fasting. Allow us 
a moment in which we more or less disengage from the world around us. We become focused on the reality that is God. And we turn our ears toward Him very intentionally. Prayer is a conversation. And it's if, uh, if this room, imagine we're all in a mixer and, and we're holding our beverages in one hand and, and maybe an hors d'oeuvre in another and we're all chatting. You know, there's groups chatting all around there. It would be noisy in this room, wouldn't it? And so if, if you and I wanted to talk, we'd have to raise our voices a little, little or, or draw a, a little closer to each other. That's what prayer is. We're separating, we're, we're disengaging from the world around us. And we're listening for God. Now we're commanded to pray always. So apparently this needs to be a running dialogue throughout the day. We maintain a hearing ear. Well, God the Holy Spirit will begin to speak to us as we take time to do that. And something extraordinary happens when He speaks to us. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, by the rhema, the God-breathed Word. Faith grows when we hear God the Holy Spirit speak to us the Word of God. It is a catalyst that liberates faith in our hearts. So that's what we desperately need. When people come to me and they're talking about challenges that they're ha having, I, when I go to prayer for them, my first prayer is, God, make yourself known to them. Reveal yourself more fully. If it's someone in need of healing, I pray that they have a revelation of Jesus Christ, the healer. That His redemptive work at Calvary, as it pertains to healing, becomes revealed to them in a manner that liberates faith for healing in their lives. Discuss that in Matthew, the 8th chapter. There's an unusual event that occurs, beginning with verse 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, what is a centurion? He's a soldier, a, a, a soldier who has a command beneath him. He is someone who understands the nature of authority. Verse 8 again, but the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now he explains the grounds for his faith. For or because I also am a man under authority. Say under authority with soldiers under me. So he's under someone, and there are those who are under him. He is in service to someone, and there are those in service under him. I am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Verse 13, And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. So this servant had a real 
revelation or an understanding of authority. Now, if this centurion had been sacked, stripped of his rank, would he any longer enjoy authority over others? No. So the authority with which he commanded the soldiers beneath him was, was actually authority that belonged to someone else. He was, an ex- he was merely an extension of that authority that he was submitted to. If he were no longer in submission to that authority, he would no longer possess authority with which he could command others. He understood that Jesus had authority. And that sickness, in this case, would yield to his authority. Keep that thought and turn with me to James chapter 4. We certainly need authority, don't we? When we pray. For matters in our own life, authority is essential. Jesus explained to the disciples when they said, teach us to pray, he said, okay. We begin, our Father who art in heaven. It's immediately establishing a prayer as a relational exercise with God the Creator in which we now call Him Father. Establishing this father-son relationship. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy will be done. What sort of sentence is thy will be done? Hmm? No, thy will be done. Declarative. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer, uh, the prayer of a regent. For me, with regency, uh, a king um, grants authority to someone that he charges to conduct business on his behalf within the kingdom. So it is a regent now, acting on behalf of the king, duly authorized by the king. And so when he speaks or acts, it is as if the king is acting or speaking. So this prayer contains that element of regency, doesn't it? The person praying is saying, Thy kingdom come. What is the kingdom? It is the authority, the rule, the jurisdiction of God. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. How is the will of God done in heaven? Without resistance. Without resistance. The only resistance that could withstand Jesus was human resistance. The resistance he met through unbelief. He returned to Nazareth, his own hometown, and he could there do no mighty work, we read, because of the strength of the illnesses or the demons that he encountered? No, because of their unbelief. That was the limiting factor, was their unbelief. Jesus could there do no mighty work because of their unbelief. But Satan could offer no resistance to the authority of God. Indeed, 
Jesus said, when the, when the disciples returned, they said, they came back with joy. They said, even the devils are subject to us through your name. We've never experienced this sort of authority and power. And Jesus said, relax, boys. That's not the exciting thing. What should you be so enthused? And he laid it over the fact that your names are written in heaven in the Lamb's book of life. That, that's what should enthuse you. He said, look, I beheld, I was there. I beheld Satan um, thrust down from heaven as lightning. In other words, you know, when he, when he inspired a third of the angels to rebel against God with him and said, I'm taking over heaven. I like your throne and I think it will fit me very nicely. Apparently the resistance was, uh, the resistance movement was over just as swiftly as <laughs> Jesus said he was thrust out of heaven like lightning. Nothing resisted the power and authority of Jesus. The only resistance he encountered was human resistance in the form of doubt and unbelief or disobedience. We need authority. We need power as we pray. When we pray, will of kingdom of God come, rule of God come in my life, in this situation, or as I'm praying for other people, we are praying for the, um, the kingdom, the power of God, the jurisdiction of God, the authority of God to make a difference in this situation. When I pray for you tonight, when Don prays for you, we're praying that. And we're praying, let the will of God be done in this life. I need authority and power to pray in such a fashion, whether it's for you or whether it's for me in my own life and situation. Roman, or James, rather, the fourth chapter, uh, verse 7. Let's read this verse aloud together, please. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If we are not leading lives submitted to God, we cannot resist the devil. He will not flee from us. The, the, the sons of Sceva. Remember the story in the book of Acts, the seven sons of Sceva? They had heard of the uh, wonderful ministry of the, the early church as they were casting out demons and healing the sick. And so they addressed a demoniac. And they commanded the demon, the demons to come out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. <laughs> Their lives were not submitted to God. They, they were not in relationship with God through Christ. And so the demon answered, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And the last we read of the seven sons of Sceva, they're running naked down the road. They were, apparently it got ugly. You and I, as we walk in submission to God and to His will, as we walk in the Spirit, God's authority finds recourse in our lives, through our lives, and it will reveal itself in prayer. 
prayer for our own lives, prayer for others. But this submission is most fully realized in community. Now that doesn't sound nearly as exciting as talking about faith and power. What do other people have to do with this, Larry? I don't get that. I mean, people are okay, but I could take them or leave them, frankly. Now, I've been in a pastorate for a long time, and I've actually heard pastors say, you know, I love pastoring a church. If it weren't for people, it would be wonderful. I <laughs> think, well... That's humorous, but you don't really mean that, do you? But some, I realize, actually, they do mean that. You're in the wrong business. We We are at our most spiritual, not alone on the mountaintop, but together, serving and loving others particularly when they're not easy to serve and love. And not everyone is. Including you from time to time. Right? How many of you realize you're annoying at times? Just really annoying. I mean, when Beth does something annoying to me, I think, I do this to her all the time. I mean, seriously, that, that's what keeps us uh, that's what keeps us in check. That that is what keeps us in check. Um, I can deal with you when you're behaving rudely because I know at times I behave rudely. I know that's difficult to believe. I struggle to believe that myself. <laughs> We, we are merciful toward others because we understand how desperately we require mercy from others. Paul says it like this. How many of you want to be spiritual? Galatians 6. Turn with me to Galatians 6, please. Uh, is this helpful tonight? We're, we're, we're going to continue talking about the... Um, I thought I was getting a message from heaven. <laughs> um, <laughs> We're going to continue talking about faith. We're going to be continue talking about authority and power. And it's all exciting and wonderful. But I want to do this in a fashion that is um, just thoroughly synthesized with this important truth that the spiritual man is a man who is loving and serving others, laying down his life for others, meekly, humbly, acknowledging his own flaws as he helps those around him overcome theirs. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are... How many of you want to be spiritual? You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. What is the spirit of gentleness? It doesn't sound like this. Hey, bucko, you better get your act together. What are you doing? I can't even believe you. I'm shocked and appalled. That is not being gentle. Now, gentle is also not, oh, you know, that's okay. 
Everybody's a little goofy. And accommodating people's bad behavior. That's not what gentleness is. Because we need, we need each other's help to overcome. We're not creating a, a circumstance in which we are, or a state in which we suddenly um, grow apathetic about the areas within our lives that need to undergo change. We're not asking for people to accommodate our bad behavior. What ultimately we're asking people to do is to agree with what God says about us, despite those bad behaviors. And to help us as a partner in grace to access the grace of God that will, that will begin that transforming process in my life. Restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, say I'm nothing. Oh, that goes against the grain, particularly in the West. I'm nothing. What? That's sacrilegious. I am something. I am somebody. We've got an entire theology. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love your neighbor if you don't love yourself. That is bad theology. That's tortured exegesis. That is not what that verse of Scripture is saying. It is assuming everybody loves each other. Not like, I am crazy about me, but I put myself first place. And so the, Jesus is saying, instead of putting yourself first place, put others in front of you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Some of you look like, I don't care for that. I have a whole series of messages on loving myself. <laughs> Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Jesus said in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. Now we read in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. But before that truth can make an impact on our lives, we have to... Um, embrace the important truth that Jesus declared in John 15, 6. Without me, you can do nothing. If anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another, for each will bear his own load, or each will bear his own burden. Now, this is not talking about challenges. This is not talking about sickness. This is not talking about difficulties in life. This burden that we all bear is the burden of the human condition. That we are all deeply flawed. Deeply flawed. I'm looking at you, Brent. We are all deeply flawed. Look at your neighbor right now and say, my goodness, you're deeply flawed. <laughs> <laughs> look, it's true. I, listen, look at everyone, look at me. I am deeply flawed. I guarantee it. And if you don't believe me, ask to spend five or ten minutes with Beth. Please, no more than that. I am a priest here. And just ask her is Larry 
deeply flawed? Oh, yes. We are all deeply flawed. It is part and parcel of the human condition. But we are also new creatures in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's the truth and reality that has to rule in our hearts and minds. And, and we are called to serve one another. We are to speak the truth in love. If you want to unpack that fully, it means that I'm going to agree with what God says about you, even when your own behavior seems to deny it. I'm going to keep agreeing with what God says about you, even when your own behavior denies it. That's how we bear one another's burdens. And it's easy to do it when you realize we all have our own burden to bear. Well, it's a quarter till, so I don't want to annoy you any I am deeply flawed after all. Um, um, we'll pick this up uh, next week, but I hope that you're... Um, I hope I am presenting this in such a fashion that you're tracking with me. Uh, we are people of destiny. People for whom authority and power uh, are our birthright. We are to walk in it. Our prayer life should reflect this authority and power. Our lives should begin to bear its fruit both with regard to our own challenges that we might encounter from time to time and experiencing victory over them, but also as we minister to others. But that authority and that power is tethered inextricably to love, to a life of, of uh, loving service. Loving and serving God, loving and serving others, His people, and those who have not yet named Christ as the Lord. Father, thank you for this uh, time together tonight. Thank you for your word. I pray that um, as, we, as we meditate upon it, as we ponder it, that you would give us light, that you would cause us to see truth that we have not yet seen before, and that it would become a part of us, that you would give us such understanding, such a revelation of this word that we would discover Jesus in it and in seeing him become like him as it awakens within us his life and nature. Thank you. Let's just take a moment if you don't mind. Thank you, Jesus. Let's all just where we're sitting, just quietly, let's lift our hands before the Lord. Lord, fill us fresh with your Holy Spirit. We yearn for more of you. We love you so very much.
And we want you, Lord, to have more of us. Lives lived in joyful and humble submission to your will and purpose. Lives lived joyfully in your continued presence in our lives. Fill us fresh, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. We ask this, Father, with expectant hearts, in Jesus' name, amen.